Hello, and welcome to Inside Policy Talks, the premier video podcast of the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, Ottawa's most influential public policy think tank. At the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, we harness the power of Canada's brightest minds to tackle Canada's greatest challenges. Learn more at macdonaldlaurier.ca. Okay, well, welcome everyone to the MLI podcast. I'm Aaron Woodrick. I'm the director of the Domestic Policy Program at MLI. I'm very pleased to be joined today by one of our senior fellows, Ryan Alford. He's also a professor at the Boralaskan Faculty of Law at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay and a bencher of the Law Society of Ontario. Ryan, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Aaron. Always a pleasure. Listen, I want to talk about a a very important issue right now. Well, it's always important, but it's especially important in these sort of very highly emotionally charged moments. Um, And it's about free expression, freedom of speech in Canada. Um, Obviously, we're, we're, you know, right now in the midst of a a war that's just broken out between Israel and Hamas. um, And we're seeing a lot of calls for, um, you know, around a lot of these protests. There's concerns that is it hate speech? Um, Is it putting people at risk? And so there have been calls from some quarters to limit some of these protests um, for police to take action and even calling on authorities to ban them. And so I kind of wanted to explore today, you know, and contrast what's happening today with what happened, uh, you know, almost two years ago at the Freedom Convoy protest, where we heard a lot of similar calls, but sort of coming from different quarters. And so I sort of wanted to talk today about how we contrast these two things and how we try and find a sort of principled uh, way forward on free speech issues. So first, um, you know, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on you know, what, what, what do the relative, the different responses from different people to these two protests tell us about the sort of the public's view of free speech and, and support for it in principle? I think that most people support freedom of speech in principle. And I don't think we should necessarily accuse people of hypocrisy when they say, oh, this particular form of speech is abhorrent and it should be banned. I think largely that's just a function of the kind of response that people are having to something which is perhaps intensely disrespectful. And when people experience that, it's really hard to connect that with the more general principle. I think in that situation, it's really important that people who have some sense of this, who can step outside of that frame, offer their expertise, maybe give a little bit of different context. But I don't think it's just a matter of simple hypocrisy. Yeah, and, and is it not the case in a lot of cases, there may be folks who are genuinely fearful. If you're if you're genuinely afraid of sort of, you know, physically violent consequences, your gut reaction is going to be, well, we have to stop this because it's the only way to sort of prevent violence. Something that I want to get into is the notion that we live in a liberal society, but to some degree, our emotional regulation doesn't reflect that fact. Uh, so in most of human history, when someone was saying something intensely disrespectful to you, something that challenged your social standing, challenged your moral standing, things of that nature, that was usually, if not always, a prelude to actual violence. Because there was no uh, regulation of actual violence. There was no police force, and there was no distinction between speech and violence. So we have to remember that we do live in a society where we can punish the violence, where we can regulate, protect, do all of those things, and then maybe take a step back and say, well, then maybe I should think about the link between speech and violence a bit differently than perhaps my limbic brain would have it. Yeah, it's an interesting point you make. You know, we sort of take for granted now when we say things like, well, we solve our problems through debate, not violence. This is a relatively recent occurrence in human history, right? This is not something for the vast majority of our history. Um, we did solve our problems with violence, and that was the problem. So we got to kind of resist the temptation to, to go back to that. And the other uh, dimension, I think, is we forget that the notion of civility governing discourse 
and breaches in civility being incredibly problematic and leading towards violence, that's also even more recent. Because if you look, for instance, at the um, public political discourse of the 19th century, um, it's incredibly vitriolic. So mm -hmm. if you just go back and you take a look at what Sir John A. Macdonald would have been subjected to in his time, um, figures of that nature, uh, just by the standards of the 20th century, we would assume that they were a prelude to actual violence. They actually weren't, because in that society, people had come to realize that, okay, well, now we can rely upon the protection of the laws. And that was something that they were just incorporating, something that was very fresh to them. Now, um, as and I think we'll get to this a bit later, civility norms have declined quite a bit. Um, we now kind of wonder whether or not we can rely upon the same protections in a way that perhaps we didn't 100 years ago. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if because of this sort of the, the level of vitriol, and I, I'm sure most people will probably agree that uh, the social media has certainly contributed to this because it provides an easy platform to spread the kind of sort of uh, uh, one-liners that would be, you know, in a previous era, harder to sort of spread widely. Um, so you have this sort of unending supply of these things, which I think probably contributes to an overall sort of heightened sense of emotion. You know, I think a lot of people in principle, uh, Ryan, when, uh, when things aren't very emotional, they would agree with the idea that there's a difference between defending um, you know, the right of someone to say something and defending the content of that speech. So, you know, we could disagree vehemently with what someone says, but we agree they have the right to say it. Does that become a lot harder when we're emotionally engaged? Like, is that the reason why people start to conflate, oh, the fact that you're sticking up for that person saying something means you must agree with what they're saying. Um, and that's why we run into situations, whether again with the convoy or with today with the protests, uh, you know, people who are supporting Palestine and or Hamas, uh, that people say, well, if you're defending the right of those people to speak, you're a bad person because you're agreeing with the terrible things that they're saying. Yeah. In communication research, uh, frequently they talk about the two track model of reasoning, one being very emotional and one being very rational and very uh, logical in orientation. And something that research has affirmed again and again and again, it's very hard to switch from the first model to the second. Once you're very emotionally engaged to step out of it and say, oh, well, wait, maybe it isn't just a slippery slope or perhaps someone who's speaking in a principled way saying, I support the right of someone to say that it doesn't mean that they're associated with this. It's very hard to shift back into that way of thinking, uh, but it's essential that we do. Uh, this is a, a real benefit is that we're able to use that kind of logic and unpack these things. But again, just incredibly difficult. It's a huge challenge. And in, in part, when people breach the civility norms, when they breach the norms of respect that we all took for granted until, let's say, you know, uh, to some degree, maybe 15 years ago, uh, in terms of how we spoke in public, um, th that becomes more difficult for the other people. So I think it's a, it's a rather complex dynamic because when people speak with tremendous disrespect or question the moral standing of people in various ways, uh, make, make really powerful accusations against groups, uh, you can't really just naturally expect that they're going to take the attitude of, oh, well, I, I, I certainly respect their right to say what they do. Sure. Hopefully you get offended. You do. And I think that that's a reaction that people should expect. But nevertheless, I hope that it, it's possible to, to add some uh, cold water to this and say, well, how would we really want to act to preserve our own values? Because really, it's not just about the rights of those people. It's about our view of who we are and what we tolerate and why. 
Yeah, that, I mean, the saying, a cooler head should prevail. Easy to say, you know, harder harder to convince people. Is that, as I always say, pe- try to, try telling people who are angry that all they need to do is just calm down, right, and see the, see the reaction that you get. Um, I want to talk specifically about, uh, you know, we've seen, obviously, with, the, with, with what's happening in Israel and Gaza now, that there have been s- calls from some quarters, um, you know, to, to limit protests in Canada or to uh, punish either, you know, explicitly or indirectly some of the people who are, you know, protesting what's happening um, uh, specifically now in Gaza. Um, you know, how do we how do we navigate this? Right. I, I again refer back to the the contrast with the convoy. There were people again at the time that were in support of using the Emergencies Act, a very powerful, somewhat argue draconian tool um, that some people argue is not the threshold has not been met to use. Um, you know, how do we how do we take a principled approach in this when we see protests of things that we really don't agree with? How do we um, establish lines that allow maximize freedom of expression, but can still give peace of mind and protect against, you know, uh, legitimate concerns about violence? So when we take that deep breath, hopefully we can remember that we have already worked out in advance what specific tools we can use to target things with far more precision than just this general blanket ban, right? We have criminal code provisions for incitement. We have criminal code provisions for materially supporting terrorism. We don't need to resort to something that's gonna have an effect on speech directly, and which is going to lead in and perhaps propagate the idea that the enforcement is largely political, which is incredibly dangerous in this kind of a situation. So we should talk about the particular tools that we have to deal with the most problematic aspects of this behavior, and then to kind of unpack and differentiate between someone who's just really upset, who goes to a rally, who's with other people, uh, the emotional tenor becomes raised, but who doesn't necessarily have the same um, uh, intention or even the same viewpoint as a lot of other people in these protests. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the obvious example would be, again, the, the convoy where you had some people in these, uh, you know, in the convoy calling for overthrow the government. And then you'd have other people sort of saying, well, I'm just here because I don't like uh, I don't like the the mandates and I don't like the vaccine requirements. And then similarly, with some of these protests we've seen recently, um, you've had folks shouting, you know, very alarming things about Jews or in support of Hamas. But then you've got others who just hold Palestinian flags and say, you know, I don't agree with Hamas, but I but I support the Palestinian cause. So how do we just how do we passing there? And something I would always note is if you take a look at these protests, you will probably see um, uh, where where they're not carefully regulated by marshals, which I think they are. And they will be in the future because of the blowback. But you may see a Hezbollah flag. You may see a Hamas flag. You're also probably seeing a lot of flags of the Communist Party of Canada or Mm. other far left groups. Now, when you see that, you know for a fact that the majority of the protesters are are not Stalinists, right, or members of some obscure Trotskyist sect. But I think the same presumption should apply for when you see a flag of that nature. Although I think that the display of those flags of organizations that are specifically listed in Canada as terrorist organizations, needs to be punished. But again, this goes back to our earlier point of the precision, that we don't just necessarily say, well, look at all of these people who support Hezbollah or support Hamas. We say, look at the people uh, saying this and look at the person there who chose to do that thing in particular. Yeah, it's interesting. And and on a flag specifically, this raises an interesting point I thought about. A lot of the time when we're trying to uh, ascribe, you you, you talk about the the mens rea, right? We have to guess. What are people, what are they trying to express? When we're talking about symbols, things like flags, you know, 
the swastika. These are things that the symbol, the, the meaning of the symbol is clearly established. So in your view, if you display a flag of an organization that the government of Canada has you know, deemed to be a terrorist organization, is that stronger evidence that you're crossing a line than, say, if you just show up generally at a rally with a Palestinian flag? Well, absolutely, because if you uh, have a Hamas flag or Palestinian Islamic Jihad or Hezbollah, sure. so just to speak of Hamas in particular, that organization in its foundational documents calls for genocide, right? So when you have an organization that is genocidal and you chose to display their symbology, very much like uh, showing a, a Third Reich flag, thing of that nature, it, it is very strong evidence. Whereas when somebody shows the flag of the Palestinian National Authority, um, and again, this becomes very complicated. It's very hard to unpack all this. That was formerly the flag of the PLO, right? Um, which, strangely enough, now is is politically distinguishable from Hamas in terms of ideology. You're, you're getting into much more complicated questions. But when I, I think with respect to the decisions that have been made legally, when it's put into the criminal code, and we can have this reference to the, uh, the, the official ideology of the organization, that provides a much clearer link to establish the intent of the particular person who is communicating. Because otherwise, why are they doing it? Why are they yeah. displaying a Hamas flag rather than a far more uh, generic Palestinian flag? So uh, I guess then to play devil's advocate a bit then, there are people who say, okay, well, that's all fine and good. But if you show up at a rally and you know, like you show up at a rally and someone's got a swastika and you don't have one, is there then a sort of reverse onus that's triggered? You show up, you see the flag, you haven't called it out, you're still happy to be there. Does it sort of, are you guilty by association? And if not guilty um, for, for you know, sort of expressing hateful speech yourself or dangerous speech yourself, for perhaps amplifying or giving that that person because they've now got bigger numbers around them, you're sort of <laughs> amplifying their message. How do we navigate that? Well, it's very tricky because somebody in that situation might think to themselves, I don't recognize that flag. That's actually quite common, right? I mean, I don't think most people would understand what has, I mean, if I said, do you know what Hezbollah's flag looks like? Sure. And this is one of the organizations that's most critically involved in this at the moment. Uh, most people would say no, right? Um, it, and if you do know, then what's your reaction, right? Do you say, uh, well, I, I just want to kind of ignore this person, or do I confront this person, which mar marshals and protests often have that, um, uh, that that dilemma, right? Do I attract attention? And then strangely enough, right, in some circumstances, the individual displaying it may have a very particular purpose, right, where they're saying something along the lines of, well, I believe the government of Canada are equivalent to Nazis, and that's why I'm displaying this Nazi flag, right? It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult question, and you really can't resolve it just by reference to looking at the situation and saying, well, look at those bystanders. You really don't actually know what they know or how they're reacting to it. And in the in a highly overcharged emotional environment, it's very easy to assume that they're just condoning it or they're entirely aligned with it. Not necessarily the case. Um, yeah, and, and so interestingly, I know another example that's come up a lot um, is uh, there's a chant that's said at a lot of these rallies in Palestinian but from the river to the sea, right? which, right, for people who know the geography of the area, basically implies that there will not be any Israel um, you know, for if you're actually going to have a Palestine that's from the river to the sea. So is that, you know, where do you think that falls in terms of the symbol? I mean, is this, an, again, another case of a lot of people might not know what the geography is and it's just a song, but others would say, well, if you're at this rally and you understand what's going on and why are you singing this if you don't know what it means and that it clearly implies um, that you don't believe Israel has a right to exist? 
Well, Aaron, strangely enough, there are people who are naive enough to believe that if there was a Palestinian state uh, that was dominated by an Islamist organization, that it would permit um, Judaism to be practiced openly, that it uh, would be a state that Jews could live in, right? There really are people who believe that Hamas could essentially be a member of a coalition that heads up a liberal democracy. Now, you, you, this is one of those ideas that you have to be highly educated to be dumb enough to believe, right? And I, I don't know what people are being taught on college campuses with respect to the history of 1947 and 1948, or, or go back to 1936 and believe that, but um, they do, right? Mm. Um, so again, highly subjective. Some people uh, have notions of you know driving everyone from the region who's not supportive of a particular political project others far far more problematic views with respect to uh religious intolerance and let's let's go even further from that to to, to darker places but it is a spectrum right that, that i think that that slogan is real it, it has a clear context it has a clear history but but not everyone who's there understands that history and perhaps they want to believe the most benign interpretation of it Right. Um, especially if they're kind of there are people who who have been taught to believe that this is the tolerant view or this is the liberal view. Sure. Uh, and I think that's a failure of, of whatever educational process they've gone through. But nevertheless, that remains true. Yeah. And that's interesting because there is the case for the sort of useful idiot in any protest. Right. Um, yes, they may be, you know, unwittingly, um, uh, you know, a, amplifying or sort of helping the cause of a group they don't fully understand, but that's very different from a mens rea standpoint of intending to do that. So while we might still condemn them and, and um, you know, be troubled by the fact that they have these views, their intent is very different than other people who, who know full well what they're doing. And, and well, so we shouldn't play into what, what those groups are doing because what Hamas wants to do, we, we understand this clearly, is to become associated kind of, you know, almost coterminally with the notion of what it means to be a Palestinian, right? right? That support for Hamas means support for Palestine and vice versa, which is what every group has always done of that nature. And the smart response is always to say, we reject this. Those people are your victims, right? Yeah. Um, but so, but when, we, when we say to people who are trying naively to support Palestine, well, when you do that, you're supporting Hamas, to some degree, we're playing into that. And that's why it's really important to allow people to freely voice things, right? Because when we clamp down on it in this blanket fashion, it plays into the narrative of, well, the, the only way to react to this is with something which is more, more than just speech. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to talk a bit about, uh, alluded to a bit earlier, but preemptive bans on speech, right? Are there any circumstances where this sort of thing is justified? I mean, uh, if, for example, some of these protests led to a certain amount of vandalism or civil unrest, you know, you know, is the case then stronger that, you know what, because of we now have a sort of a, a, a rising amount of evidence building up that, these protests are leading to outcomes which are crossing the line. Does that give any weight to the idea of a, a preemptive ban sort of based on the nature of the protest? Or are we getting completely off the rails if we even go there? I think the right metaphor here um, is to draw that link to what happened in the United States with Skokie, Illinois, right? So the American Nazi Party uh, used to hold rallies and then march through uh, towns and suburbs that were chiefly populated by members of the Jewish community and in fact had large numbers of Holocaust survivors. So, so in, in a situation analogous to this in Canada, it would be if an organization which seems to be broadly supportive of Hamas goes directly to an area 
that is known for being uh, the heart of the Jewish community with particular aims in mind there. But there, the difference would be in the United States, you have this, this, this notion that there can be no prior restraint because of the absolute protections of the First Amendment. In Canada, you would have the option of injunction available, right? Mm-hmm. And then there would be a very careful balancing, right? And you'd have to really get into the notion of what are the particular aims of this protest? Are they hoping right? That there's going to be something more than just speech. Are they hoping to get a reaction by going to what, what people perceive as a safe haven, as a place where, you know, um, that their community can be unmolested, right? Um, but, but that would require a careful court deliberation. But I, I wouldn't rule it out of hand because we don't have the absolute protections that they have in the United States. But I do think that we have um, a careful consideration there under the limitations of section one and the Oaks test to freedom of speech that would have to require careful balancing. Yeah. And, and speaking of balancing, and I know you've written about this topic with respect to the convoy. I mean, you know, what we saw with the convoy was a collision of, you know, the, the right to free expression for Canadians to protest, but also the right of residents in downtown Ottawa, peaceful enjoyment. And one of the ways that was reconciled, and again, you can expand on this from, as you've written about it, was the injunction that was sought to reduce the horn honking, where the judge sort of engaged in this analysis of saying, how do we maximize the right to peaceful enjoyment and the right to protest? Aha, here's one of the key things. So I'm going to place an injunction on the honking and that should should resolve a lot of that tension so i don't know if you want to expand on that at all i do i think that this is really important because when when you have that kind of a detailed consideration it also leads to negotiations it also leads to dialogue and discourse and i think that it's really difficult right to engage in that when, when you have to have a, a discussion with protest organizers about how if they do certain things, like coming into the Jewish community on uh, the Sabbath, right, as they practice it or, or what have you. And this is an issue with respect to protests in the United States that are planned right now. Like what that effect is going to have. You have to engage in dialogue with people who are, really appear to you to be quite intolerant, right? And that's an incredibly excruciating process and perhaps not one that we should make light of, right, as people having to engage in this. But nevertheless, it does produce positive outcomes. So when you put this into the legal system and it has this notion that, oh, we have to balance the rights and the harms in a very detailed way with respect for constitutional rights. And then people come to respect what the court is saying. They come to respect how they're being pushed towards negotiation and compromise. This really is the marketplace of ideas. And it's not pretty. When we talk about how we tolerate um, intolerant speech, and by the way, I think that, you know, Charles Taylor a very prominent Canadian talked about this for a really long time. It's always worth going back and looking at what he had to say about this. It's a very difficult ask, right? Particularly in situations like this, but it's just much better than the alternative in the long run, right? Which is to convince people that it's really very political and what you can say and can't say is dictated by um, how much uh, influence and, and, um, and, and, and pull and uh, public esteem and all of these things. And of course, this is going in multiple different directions now. Um, we don't want it to be that way. We want it to be principled and we want people to actually engage um, yep. in the marketplace of ideas. It's just a lot uglier and messier than uh, than we, we like to assume within the ivory tower. Yeah. And it's uh, it's uh, it's tempting for a lot of pe- people to say, well, what look, why put up with all this? 
harm and offense when we could simply just not allow it. But of course, that's a false choice because not allowing it doesn't make those ideas go away. It pushes them into corners, frankly, where they can't be confronted. And I, I don't know your views on this, but I actually think that we, we talk a lot and then the downsides to offensive and, and hateful speech are obvious, but there are upsides in the sense that they identify the people who say them. They allow us to rebut and, and respond. And if we don't allow that to happen out in the open, they end up in echo chambers where there's absolutely no one to confront them. And I think that's where you get, you know, when you confront, when you allow people to say their, their piece and argue with them respectfully, you at least have the chance of changing their minds. Whereas but if you... That, Aaron, you're onto something very important there. When it's very abhorrent, it also allows you to understand that something's gone very wrong. So mm -hmm. when young people in Canada just have, have really no understanding of the history of the region, right? Um, when, when they kind of just view things through such a simplified lens. And you see this with educated young people in particular. It's a really important reality check. So it's really important that we, that we see this, right? That we, that we can address these underlying factors that are, that are really uh, far more fundamental than just the problem of the offensive speech, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe you can engage with it on the individual level. And when you have an individual young person, you can ask them questions about, well, how did you think Arab states treated Palestinians? Right. Let's just say uh, in the latter half of the 20th century and kind of correct their viewpoint that way. But then you can also say more fundamentally, what's going on in the institutions that educate these people? Do we need yeah. to go on from just Holocaust education in high schools to a more detailed curriculum about the Middle East in the 20th century? But you wouldn't be asking yourself that question if you didn't see what yeah. you really wouldn't want to see and, and hear what you wouldn't want to hear. Yeah, we wouldn't we wouldn't know because we wouldn't we never have heard it. Um, I want to close with uh, one specific example, and and this is a, a unique one because it involves the legisl a legislator in Ontario, uh, the MPP Sarah uh, Jama, who, um, uh, as you probably know, she's an NDP MPP. She's, she's spoken out in support of Palestine and said some uh, controversial things about uh, Israel. Um, she was expelled from the NDP caucus, um, and she was also censured in the legislature. So she's not um, able to. Speak. What are your views on this? Is this appropriate? Is this a is this a dangerous precedent um where what, what where's the line drawing should where should that occur there my view is that it's appropriate and i think we have to take a look at it within the norms of the particular institution so one of the reasons why legislatures have parliamentary privilege is because they have a very particular function and they're allowed to regulate their affairs um, themselves right these are self-imposed limits it's not a matter of the government you know, doing this on a private citizen. Sure. It's a member of a particular kind of body that has to engage in a particular form of discourse. I think what she said was so disrespectful that telling her that an apology is required before she's going to be readmitted to being a, a member of that body to speak freely is appropriate. But I do think also it's a question of people who are not operating within the confines of that institution have to allow them to make those judgment calls. And just seeing that that's very sui generis because that's the rules of a body that relies upon collegiality. It relies upon respectful discourse in various ways. And I would say also that that kind of a penalty that we would think is extreme was routinely imposed for things like just personal insults, right? Um, mm. Up until very recently. And saying to someone, you must apologize to restore that collegiality and you must address the harm that you've caused. It's just really not novel.
Yeah, that's interesting because I think, um, you know, the the view, first of all, the separate things being expelled from the party is different than not yep. being able to speak in the legislature, even as an independent. Um, and if we apply the sort of general rules, you say, well, free speech. But there, as you say, there's very specialized rules. This is sort of self-governing club. And if the case is, for example, if we said an MPP stands up and accuses someone across the aisle of being a child molester. And then the legislature stands up and says, well, you can't speak again here until you apologize. I don't think... Or, or calling someone a liar, using that yeah. word, right? That's yeah, yeah. routinely uh, a basis for censure. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting point. So it's less about the, less about the specific uh, uh, content than it is about just sort of a, a general breach of decorum and, and any issue. I think we should view it through that lens, that... And, and this takes me to a point that I wanted to make more generally. Like we've seen a huge decline in civility norms. That's something that this is showing us, right? That when people are told, look at the harm and the offense that you're causing, it doesn't seem to register on them. They say, well, yes, but this positive social outcome, right? Addressing the oppression of the Palestinians as they see it in Gaza, let's say, just warrants this, right? Yeah. Like, when did this become the norm? So what you're seeing in parliament is kind of like an older sense of how you balance certain things. The fact, like, I'm not saying that we should restrict free speech in civil society based on breach of those norms. But again, in terms of seeing something that's gone very wrong, um, why civility is just really completely falling off the radar of modern young people. And the notion of you know the, the harm that they cause through their speech, just not registering on them as something that would allow them to self-regulate. Yeah, it may, and it may be the case again. I always hate to make social media the culprit as a as an avid consumer of it, but uh, I, suffice to say, civility probably doesn't go viral as much as the alternative does, and that may be part of the problem. But um, listen, this has been a fantastic talk. Uh, I want to thank you very much for for joining us today. Thank you all for uh, for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on the next MLI podcast.